I don't really know how to transition out from naked Channing Tatum. But again, this is just <laughs> this is the this is the journey. Pantsy politics. Furious about Republicans, optimistic about unionization trends, feminist ode to Channing Tatum. We do it all here. We do it all here. This is Sarah Stewart Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsu Politics. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics, where we take a different approach to the news. Today, we're going to talk about state legislative sessions, in particular, the one that just closed in our home state of Kentucky. We're going to talk about the latest unionization efforts at Amazon and Starbucks and Apple across the country. Last, since it's the week before our book launch, we're going to talk about The Lost City, the latest Sandra Bullock romp about a very different kind of book launch. Let me tell you, Beth, our book launch doesn't have near enough naked Channing Tatum in it, I can tell you that much. I think it has zero, which I'm I'm sorry to announce. What's wrong? Who's in That's charge? That's not really selling it, is it? Who's in charge? Who's in, there? Should be more. Okay, it's fine. I guess it's us, but whatever. Well, and here we are because now what comes out next Tuesday? We are one week from launch day. We'll be in Waco, Texas, this weekend celebrating that launch with Clint Harp and Kelly Harp at a live show Saturday night. It's going to be stupid fun. Mm-hmm. We would love for you to be there. If you cannot be there, we would love for you to pre-order the book and then join us for our virtual launch party on Tuesday night. All the links that you need for all the things related to the launch are in the show notes. And I just have to say again that the reviews coming in on this book from our launch team who got to read it early have been so touching. And they are exactly what we wanted, I think, Sarah. You know, we wanted to write a really practical book that helped people get unstuck in their relationships. And that's what we're hearing. Yes, we are grateful for every single member of our incredible launch team. We're grateful for all of you who've bought tickets to Waco, who've pre-ordered the book, who've told a friend about the book. Now let's do this this podcast thing. Next up, we're going to talk about legislative sessions. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. 
Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. So Kentucky's legislative session ended this month. We got lots of national attention for, they called it an abortion omnibus bill, which makes me so nauseous. It's kind of hard for me to articulate how I feel about just the term. But the term really captures the energy, which was this was their top priority. They did some other stuff, like they almost sent teachers to jail for teaching social studies, but they were like, oops, sorry, we didn't understand the law. It was ridiculous. They continue to just strip as much power as humanly possible from our Democratic governor, Andy Bashir. So they were they were busy. Important to note, it is a part time legislator. They only have they have a limit of 60 days during even numbered years that they can legislate. This is what they chose to do with their time. Yeah. In addition to the omnibus abortion bill, we got a transgender sports bill. We got basically a critical race theory bill, which is how we almost expose teachers to criminal charges. There's some decent stuff that happened, too. One of the most encouraging things that I thought came out of this session was that our KEYS program, a state scholarship fund, will now have some eligibility for people with low-level criminal backgrounds. So, So a few things happened that you could feel good about. The problem is they did so much during this session And they did so much that is just clearly culture war bait, unconstitutional, incompetent in many respects, just fully incompetent and charging against our Democratic governor that you can't really pull out the things that you that you might feel good about. I was reading a blog post from a Republican state representative this morning who said we have made our governor very inconsequential in terms of policy in the state. And and that seems to be the goal. And I think coming off of COVID, I both understand why that's the goal and also want to yell into the universe that that it could possibly be the goal when we have seen how important state leadership is during a crisis. And as you said, 
we have a part-time legislature. Even if you want to make an argument that that this ought to happen with greater representation for people, then maybe you need to look at some structural issues because our legislature is not capable, as they showed clearly during the pandemic, our legislature is not capable of providing the kind of leadership that we need full-time. Yeah, because it's just consistent leadership. (laughs) You can't be consistent leadership if you're only there for 60 days and even number years and 30 days and odd number years, guys. Like, just do the math. I don't, it's so frustrating to me. I also think it's short-sighted. Like, who's going to want to be even a Republican governor if you keep this up? But it's also not new to Kentucky. I mean, North Carolina's dang near not a democracy because they keep doing this. They can't stand losing. They can't stand losing. And so when they lose, when they, I'm feeling a little feisty. I'm just going to put that out there right now. I told Beth before we started recording, I woke up one day and I thought, reading all the January 6th, committee reports and the updates, which I know you're going to do a deep dive on this week on More to Say, which I think is really important. And just, I don't know, maybe it's like the Watergate anniversary. I just feel like, why is the Republican Party never held responsible for their bad governance? Why? Why? Why is that? Why doesn't that happen? Why, when they do something so sloppy as to almost send teachers to jail and then are like, oh, sorry, we didn't read the bill. Like, and then no one wants to pitch a fit when they continue to strip powers from the governor and give powers to themselves that they are clearly not capable of handling. Like, I'm just, it makes me furious. It makes me so furious because ambition and corruption are enough to send me into flames of rage, but just layer a big old thick layer of incompetence on top of it, and it sends me through the roof. I have looked for and not found examples of Democratic supermajority legislatures passing such a flood of partisan Mm -hmm. priorities. Mm -hmm. That is what irritates me here. You might read news coming out of Kentucky and other parts of the country and think to yourself, how could they have allowed this to happen? Well, because it happens in such a flurry. And this has really been a pattern with our legislature for several sessions in a row now. They make the most of that part-time session and with supermajorities just ram through a ton. And you can see our few Democratic representatives on Twitter kind of saying, hello, everyone, please pay attention to this process trick that just happened, to the way this is being jammed through, to the fact that no one read this and it has this unintended consequence. But it's very difficult to bring attention attention to one partisan bad for Kentucky maneuver, let alone multitudes of them within one session. And I think you're right, especially talking about North Carolina. I can imagine that listeners in Florida feel this way right now, in Texas, all over the country. When you have these state legislatures moving so fast in such partisan ways, using a lot of procedure, you are stripping back the arguments in favor of states having more control in our system because they're more responsive to constituents because they're not. They're not. They can't be the way that they operate. For example, in Kentucky, they passed this bill. They thought it wasn't going to the override wasn't going to make it and then it ended up making it. That basically removes the power from our local library boards and gives a lot of it to partisan politicians. And like they couldn't even articulate why, but they have 75 percent. So who they don't need to. Who cares? This isn't a democracy like one of the representatives, Patty Minter, was like, why are can you even tell me the motivation behind this? Why do you want to do this? And they couldn't or didn't care to. 
express that motivation. And that is infuriating to me. Like, can you just pretend it's like Marjorie Taylor Greene up there going, I don't know, don't remember, don't know, don't remember. Or Mitch McConnell in that interview with Jonathan Swan. Like, can you please, just for my sanity, fake it? Like, fake like you care? Like, you have any desire to be a transparent, ethical, authentic leader? Just please, please, because I feel like I'm losing my mind here watching adults with an enormous amount of power over other people's lives not give two shits how they make those people feel. We had a candidate's spouse come to our house over the weekend. His wife is running to the right of our Republican representative. I mean, stop. Just give people more context. Tell them who your representative is. Tell them how he rolls. Just give pe- give the people context. Well, our local representative is Sal Santoro. He's our member of Congress in Kentucky's House. He has been in his position for a long time. He's a very conservative guy, pretty traditionally conservative Republican Responsive to constituents. My favorite thing that he does is a survey before every legislative session. It's a long list of here are the things we anticipate are going to come up, how you feel about this stuff. So I think he does a pretty good job. Do I agree with all of his votes? I do not. But I think that in terms of being responsive to constituents, he is. uh, He's well known in the community. Anyway. Running to the right. Running to the right of him is a woman. And her husband comes to see my husband. The first piece of information we got is that he was coming to see my husband and one other guy because apparently on my street, they were the only two names he had as registered Republican primary voters, which was very surprising to me. And I stored away. But he had a conversation with Chad. He told him first that his wife, the candidate, stood for Christianity and the Constitution and small government and low taxes and this whole list of things. And Chad looked at him and said, in what order? (laughs) And um, so I think that was not the conversation that he was expecting to have. As it unfolded, what we learned is, one, this woman had considered running for school board and then found out that the Kentucky State Legislature actually has more control over schools than the school board. And so that's why she decided to run for a state office, which I think is a a piece of information that we should all hold on to, because I really do believe that the Virginia gubernatorial election kicked off loads of coverage about education that's going to inspire lots of really weird candidacies across the country. But anyway, Mm -hmm. they keep talking and he brings up masking in public schools and how ridiculous it was that the governor was able to make orders respecting masking in public schools and it ought to be everyone's choice. And Chad at one point said, I did graduate work in public health. Like, this is probably not a super fruitful conversation for us to have. And the guy said, but don't you think it ought to be everybody's individual choice? And Chad said, well, like, not when the science says that does no no good. This I tell the story because this guy was really proud of the fact that incumbents were finally getting primary challenges Mm. across the state of Kentucky. And we agree with that. More people running for state office is important. What doesn't feel great to me is more people running for state office to the right of our already Republican supermajority in Kentucky. And if you are a Kentuckian to whom that kind of 
language appeals, you're not paying attention to what our legislature is actually doing. Our governor vetoed over two dozen bills and was overridden on almost all of them because this legislature has no accountability outside of the court system for its actions. And this is pretty representative of a number of states in the country. So I hope, number one, that we can encourage more people to run for these state offices, even though that is asking for a lot. Because as you said, Mm -hmm. this is a part-time job with enormous power and consequence attached to your service. But number two, I hope that we can appeal to the folks in our lives who might get that knock on the door and just kind of reflexively go, yeah, let's get those incumbents out of there and understand that if you are looking for an extreme right-wing agenda to be passed in your state, it probably just was very recently. That's what's so frustrating to me. And look, it's not like there aren't Democratic supermajorities in this country. There are. And honestly, like, I'm not sure any place that there's a supermajority is breaking new grounds policy-wise, right? Like, you have to have accountability. You have to, like, pretend that you're trying to reach a compromise that serves the most citizens and not just your partisan culture wars. It's so disturbing to me. Look, we haven't even, again, we haven't even talked about Florida the don't say gay bill and the stripping Disney of their special tax district. Because honestly, like I'm still so furious at my own state legislator. Like I cannot find the brain space or I'm a little worried about my blood pressure. If I go too much into Florida, it's the procedural shenanigans to silence those who disagree with you. That's what, From the people who want individual choice. You don't want choice. You want control. That's what you want. You don't want democracy and liberty. You want control. You don't want an open democratic process. You want to win. And that's it. And it's so abundantly clear. And it's so frustrating that there's not more consequences electorally for these attitudes from in the state houses, in Congress, in the White House. Because I feel like that is the priority, and it is abundantly clear. It's abundantly clear when you listen to state legislators. It's abundantly clear when you listen to Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, and it sure as hell is abundantly clear when you listen to Donald Trump. And I'm just so frustrated, honestly, with not just Republican voters, but moderate and independent voters, because, well, inflation's high, and that's all that matters. And it's... I'm just feeling a little hot today. I'm sorry, everybody. Well, I understand. I mean, to me, one of the reasons that it's important to talk and to use Kentucky as an example of this agenda is that it's easy to go inflation's high. Let's mix it up as -hmm. we come into the midterm elections. What this legislative session from Kentucky tells us is that the Tucker Carlson agenda is a serious one that is being implemented. Yep. No one is just stoking voters anymore. They are they are putting these things into practice. I am gravely disappointed in some of what came out of the legislature in this session and truly thought Kentucky was better than this. I really did. And again, there are some things they passed that I agree with. It's just hard to get to them because they are buried beneath some truly unconstitutional and just ugly action. Yep. 
And so I hope that diving into this is not only depressing, but it is motivating going into the midterms as we have conversations with folks who say, well, I'm not voting about this or that. And I say this as a person who used to talk like that. Okay, I'm not voting on the culture issues. I'm voting on the fiscal ones because Mm. my bet used to be that that's what people would actually act on because that's the actual responsibility of people in office to pass budgets, etc. But the truth is the budgets and everything else are being used primarily, principally to promote that culture war agenda right now. And that is something that. I feel complicit in that for some of my past votes. I will not make that mistake again. I take it literally and seriously now what is being campaigned on because that that's what they're governing on now, too. Next up, we're going to talk about a more positive trend, or at least I believe it's a more, a more positive trend, and unionization across the country. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality but not salon priced manicure, Olive & June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. All right, this week, a second Amazon warehouse in Staten Island begins a week-long vote on whether to join the new Amazon labor union. The ALU is brand spanking new. Christian Smalls, a former Amazon employee, and his best friend, Derek Palmer, started the union. It started in the Amazon warehouse across the street from the one taking the vote this week, um, and it became the first Amazon warehouse in the U.S., to unionize. It was just less than a month ago. The facility that unionized is massive. It's like 8,300 workers. The one that's voting this week is much smaller. And the story of this first unionization, I think, is so encouraging and empowering, filled with lots and lots of great details. (laughs) It started when Christian Smalls uh, wanted to organize a walkout The New York Times did some great reporting on this, and they talked about that there were more executives, including 11 vice presidents, who were alerted to his walkout than there were people actually at the walkout who attended it. But it started during COVID, concerns about worker safety, some really, like, ugly, racist communication coming from Amazon about Christian Smalls and Derek Palmer, including one they accidentally sent to 1,000 people. Uh, But they did fire Christian Smalls. And so him and Derek Palmer just, you know— grassroots organizing in the purest sense of the word. For a long time, they stood at the bus stop outside the warehouse in Staten Island. They built bonfires. They made TikTok videos. They had tons of homemade food and music. Um, They did at one point have uh, free weed and food, which is now under (laughs) before the National (laughs) Labor Relations Board. But they only spent about $120,000 raised through a GoFundMe. Now, this is not to be confused with the Amazon vote in Alabama that we talked about here at Pantsuit Politics in Bessemer and the first vote there, which was led by a big national union, the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. And bet this was what I thought was one of the most interesting pieces on the reporting at this Amazon warehouse, which is that Christian Smalls and Derek Palmer took a trip down to Bessemer in early 2021, and they basically blew them off. They were not welcoming, and they felt like they saw the professionals from the big union there and had just kind of come into the community, didn't understand the community, didn't care about the community. Now, I mean, worth noting that that vote has been challenged. They've taken another vote. Um, it's really close in Bessemer right now. They're, re- they're still counting. There were 993 no votes, 875 yes votes, but more than 400 contested ballots remain. So that's not settled in Bessemer, but I thought the part— where you have this interaction between the small grassroots union organization coming from inside the plant and this unionization effort coming from a big national union was super interesting and gets at a lot of what's going on and these other efforts we're going to talk about. 
Yeah, I think it was Axios that pointed out you see a trend of grassroots movements having momentum, but still a sense of sluggishness that has accompanied a very consistent decline in union membership across the United States in the major labor unions. I was reading a New Yorker piece about this this morning, and the phrase that jumped out at me is that young workers fueling these grassroots movements want power without bureaucracy. We are seeing similar trends in Starbucks. Again, Starbucks, like Amazon, is organizing store by store. In 2021, Starbucks workers from a store in Buffalo voted to form the first union at a Starbucks location. Now, this one is being led by one of the giant um, unions, the Service Employees International Union, or SEIU. Employees at 54 stores in 19 states are pursuing union elections now. This is not going over well with Howard Schultz and uh, the leadership at Starbucks. Uh, I was just reading a story about how he has invited employees to come in to have meetings with him where they can co-create. And employees Mm -hmm. that have uh, thoughts about unions, like he said to one woman, if you hate Starbucks so much, why don't you go somewhere else? Just like not the temperament that we want to bring to these meetings, just the former HR person in me has to say. Starbucks is notorious for having fought back previous attempts at unionization, and that's one of the big headlines that jumps out at you right now. You see big tech, Amazon, Google, Apple, uh, and I I don't know if it's fair to categorize Starbucks this way, but these companies are really resorting to like old school union busting techniques to try to keep this momentum down. Well, hopefully not old school, old school when they used to just beat the crap out of people, but I think it's really interesting. And I want to be clear here. I'm pro-union. I'm pro-big national unions. I'm not mad at them because I think it's easy to craft a narrative where they're seen as corrupt and bureaucratic and they're the problem. And I don't think that big national unions are perfect. And I do think there's a lot of bureaucracy. And Lord knows there's a long history of corruption. But Unions now are some of the most, like, tightly regulated organizations in America. And I feel like what you're seeing is not necessarily just the cumbersomeness of big national unions, but the result of the past two, three, four decades of anti-union legislation coming through state legislators and Congress and administrations, right? Like, union membership dropped because you had a concerted effort, from, particularly from the Republican Party, to craft all kinds of legislation and policies that was incredibly unfavorable to unions. And unions, to me, are an incredibly important societal institution. You have to have a way for workers to advocate for themselves. And this is, you know not accidentally, a very tight labor market. And so now there is a little bit more bargaining capacity on the part of the workers. And so these these shifts to unionization don't surprise me. I mean, union, look, nobody in America, I don't think, should be surprised by the fact that non-union workers earn way less than union workers. People in a union earn more money. And I'll never forget, a couple years ago, a, a study came out. And I read it in this article that was talking about, like, we have this narrative in America about how children do better than their parents, right? That's what we want. We want p- kids to to rise 
up the socioeconomic ladder. We want them to do better. And we have a narrative about how education is essential. We have a narrative about how family support is essential. And I'm not saying it's not. It's from researchers at Harvard, Wellesley, and the Center for American Progress, which is a liberal think tank, like full disclosure. But they released a paper in 2015 showing that children born to low-income families typically ascend to higher incomes in metropolitan areas where union membership is higher. It is like one of the biggest factors. Um, And like it makes sense. Their families are earning more, but it's like more complicated than that, right? It makes people feel like they have some control, that they have some power inside this incredibly important relationship between employer and employee. And you wouldn't expect that to impact the parents' lives, but it impacts the children's lives as well. And so, you know, I just, what I desperately hope is not just that these individual union efforts are successful, particularly at Amazon, but that we start to reevaluate our narrative about unions. It's dated. And look, I think some of those dated narratives exist inside the unions. Like, These big national unions need to look at this effort in Amazon, take note, and become adaptive. And are some of them big, bulky, cumbersome bureaucracies that are not exactly known for the adaptiveness? Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, that's true. But it's also, I mean, they they had to adapt that bureaucracy in reaction to this massive amount of anti-union regulation, legislation, and policy. So I just feel like there's responsibility on both sides. I feel kind of neutral about all of this, mostly curious. I'm curious about what happens with the ALU next. When you took a really different approach to getting to the formation of this union, what does that look like going forward? What does it look like for that to expand to another warehouse or two or three or four? I'm interested in what happens next because this is obviously a moment when we're all sort of redefining work and what we expect of work and what work owes to us when we're all really looking for a sense of community. That's a lot of what makes it so appealing to read stories about this effort in New York, that this group of people tried to take care of each other, that there were fundraisers for people who were just workers who were experiencing difficult moments in their lives, that there was food, that bringing food of different cultures representing different workers was a big part Mm -hmm. of this. I mean, there is a real undercurrent of just community and care in this effort that I think people are searching for in so many different contexts. And I think that work is a very neglected part of how we understand community and care. Someone just said about our book, they were really surprised to see a whole chapter dedicated to work in a book that's about political relationships. And we say right in that chapter, like, we don't talk enough about how much our work influences our politics and our relationships and how we feel about our lives in general. And so I I do feel really curious about where all of this is going, and I feel curious about the role of the big established unions and the startups. You know, I listened to someone talking about wealth inequality a couple years ago, and this person was making the case for greater federal involvement to reduce wealth inequality because corporations have become so big. And her point was that bigness is the challenge right now, and that if you're going to have The size and scale and scope of Amazon, Google, Apple out there, then you need a matching bigness from the government to regulate those entities. And and you might make the argument, if you've got the bigness of a warehouse that employs over 8,000 people, then you need the bigness of a well-established national union to actually give workers power in that context. And I'm curious about whether that holds true. 
I saw an example of union activity that made me really encouraged at my local school board. There was a a union representing custodians who organized custodians to come out against a proposal to outsource some of our open positions. We have a, a dire shortage of school custodians in our district, like many districts across the country do. And there was a proposal in front of the board to approve a contract with a staffing agency to fill those positions. And the union and many of its members came out in opposition to it. And it was a a very good conversation that the board listened to. And they ultimately tabled the measure so that they could keep talking. And I thought, this to me has none of the stereotypes attached to unions from either dimension, right? Everyone was just there in good faith to try to work out an issue. And I hope that efforts like what's happening with the ALU can destigmatize the corporate side of of the union conversation as well. If I were advising Howard Schultz, for example, I would say, just welcome this. If you believe you have a great corporate culture where employees are really supported and you have people wanting to organize Why fight so hard? Why have stories appearing in your Google search results about how anti-union Starbucks is? Mm -hmm. Welcome it. Work with them. See what happens. I I think everybody needs to be part of, like, turning the page here towards a more productive relationship around collective bargaining and worker rights. As I was reading all these stories about the votes at Amazon and Apple and Starbucks, what really struck me is how low the participation in the vote is. You know, at Amazon, it's like half of the people that work there. Bessemer was even lower, especially on the revote. I don't know exactly what to think about that. It makes me really sad. I think it speaks to the way workers feel, not just about these specific employers, but about their role and space inside our economy. I think it speaks to how hard these jobs are. That I think there's a sense like I've got a job, it's got I've got a healthcare, can you just let me be like I have enough to deal with? But I was interested to to see if you noticed that and what you thought about it. My admittedly very limited HR experience. So I I have only done HR in the context of a law firm, which is a very different working environment than an Amazon warehouse or retail food service, something like that. What I learned in that very different context is that if someone believes that there is an atmosphere of retaliation in any respect, Mm. you cannot talk them out of it. If if there is a fear that if we speak out about something, we're going to be punished for it, that fear metastasizes very quickly. That makes sense. And I can't even imagine the depth of what that paranoia could be like in a place where your performance is technologically measured all the time Mm -hmm. and where you already have a feeling of surveillance, even if it's a somewhat neutral feeling of being surveilled, but knowing that you're being watched constantly, that everything is on a timer, that everything is tracked. I can imagine that it gets harder to put yourself out there in any meaningful sense as as someone who has a complaint about something. Maybe that maybe it speaks to, you know, maybe it's the best act of protest that people can make. Right. Because if they felt surveilled and they just don't want to get fired, well, then they'd vote no. Right. Like you'd have a really, really high voter participation. They'd vote no. 
And that's not what we see. You just see a lot of people choosing not to vote, mm-hmm. which is probably maybe like that's the limit of what they feel comfortable with. I think that could be. And I also think that it's the sense that someone's watching uh, is getting more intense and starts earlier. I mean, my fifth mm-hmm. grader took a survey at school and believed for a few days that her teacher was angry about the survey results, that they had actually that it was supposed to be anonymous, but it actually wasn't, and that they looked mm. at it and the teacher was upset about it. So I and I, I don't think that's correct. <laughs> I just want to be clear. I don't think that's what was going on. But I do think this sense of someone has power. And they're asking me to say something and telling me to trust them. I can really say what I think. I just, it's a big lift. Yeah. With increased worker power and increased unionization, even if that unionization comes primarily to most of our lives through media coverage, I am hopeful for a different path in America because this is related to our first conversation. For sure. You know, the income inequality is a fuel for authoritarian populism. I'm not breaking any new political science ground here. And until workers and people and citizens feel empowered, you know, our democracy is going to be in danger. And, I, you know, I don't even want to, to frame it necessarily just through, like, how this benefits all of us because we should just want better for people. You know, outside of the sort of political science lens, we should just want the people that deliver all of those dang packages to be treated fairly. We should want the people who are making all of our, you know, endless river of caffeinated drinks to be treated like human beings. And so, you know, I find this trend really positive and I hope it continues and I will, you know, do whatever I can to support these workers, because I think what they're doing is amazing. Well, and you see in polling that American support for unions, not membership, but support for unions is rising. And I think that's because there's some specificity to what doing better by these workers looks like. During the pandemic, it became really clear that workplace safety is not a bygone issue that the number of hours people are being asked to work is not over. If you walk in a fast food restaurant right now, you can see numerous issues that people are dealing Mm -hmm. with in terms of short staffing, balancing out the I order at a kiosk versus I order from a person, like roles are changing. I just feel like we're watching sort of a slow motion movie about change in the labor market. And so it, it isn't surprising to me that support for unions is increasing because we understand what the ask is right now. I think a lot of these issues seemed more esoteric before the pandemic than they do now. And now you think, well, of course people have safety concerns. And I think I am becoming more and more clear all the time about the fact that one person's rest always requires another person's labor. Mm. Uh, Ellen and I have talked a lot since we did some research about Tonga after the volcano there, about the fact that they have this kind of mandatory Sabbath. Like, you can't even work out. One day a week, everybody is off. And we were talking about, like, the the interesting parts of that and the benefits, but also the fact that 
it's never going to be true that everybody gets to have the same Sabbath because people still have to eat. Children still have to be cared for. The sick still have to be cared for. Someone is laboring to enable everybody else to rest. And I think getting clear on that during the pandemic helps you understand again why why a union or a union light, like some of these groups that organize at Walmarts without being full-fledged unions, but who are negotiating on behalf of workers, you can just understand why that's needed and why it would have benefits. And and I hope that this is a moment when we can sort of rewrite the whole story. Because I, I as you said, I think the story is really dated right now in, mm-hmm. in terms of like all the characters in it. Absolutely. I don't think there's any argument that this is a new chapter in the story, and I'm incredibly encouraged. Next up, we're going to talk about chapters and books of another kind. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water. 
leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Beth, upon the passionate recommendation of Maggie, we both went and saw The Lost City this weekend. Now, for those of you who don't know, The Lost City, directed by Aaron Nee and Adam Nee. It stars Sandra Bullock. She's a romance novelist, but like a begrudging one. And she gets kidnapped by Harry Potter, a.k.a. Daniel Radcliffe, who's like, a millionaire who wants to solve this archaeological mystery in her books or like have all this archaeological information because that was her background and she just wanted to be able to write about it. So she had to put like a romance layer over top of it. And he wants her to help him find this lost city, hence the title. And then her cover leading man, the man who like poses for all her book covers, played by Janie Tatum, comes to rescue her. Brad Pitt makes an incredibly amazing appearance. Divine Joy Randolph plays her publisher, Beth, and friend. Hijinks ensue. I loved it. I thought it was a delight. It's just nice to see anything that doesn't take itself too seriously in any context. And that's what I thought was so fun about The Lost City. It was like a, it just said from the beginning, this is silly. It's going to be silly and it's going to be fun. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to leave having been delighted. And and we don't really need to say anything here. We're just enjoying ourselves at the movie theater. And I did. The funny part for us is that she's, like, launching this book. Like, she doesn't want to participate in the book launch. She definitely doesn't want to participate in the book launch with him. But then they come along. I think there were lots of, like, really great parts about it. One, yes, it didn't take itself seriously. But also, it didn't make it – t- it, it felt like it took the audience – it treated the audience and it treated the readers of romance novels like adults. That's a part of the movie I really enjoyed. Like, I'm tired of the busting on romantic comedies, and there is a fun, delightful undercurrent to so many of these movies, and I love that they leaned in without making fun of it, without making fun of the audience. Also sort of, like, made some cool stances about the readers of romance novels, which I think, you know, under a very gendered perspective, often get short shrift. I thought it was freaking amazing. Sandra Bullock, who is 57, holy crap. How'd that happen? And Channing Tatum is 41, and it just was like a non-event. Nobody even talked about it until I looked it up afterwards, and I was like, holy crap, she is over 15 years older than him. This brings me a lot of joy, just joy that it existed, that it wasn't mentioned, that it wasn't a big deal. I thought that was fantastic, and I thought it was very cleverly written. Like, yes, it was a, you know, they weren't breaking new ground, like it owes a big debt to, like, romancing the stone, but it also was clever and funny and incredibly well acted, it is hard to do physical comedy. It is hard to make a role like that seem easy. And Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum both did an exceptional job 
of of that the physical comedy component. I laughed until I cried. Yeah, I thought it was really cute and fun and funny. I thought he especially was good. Listen. Like it was a he brought dimension to a role that would it would easily have been not a dimensional role. Okay, listen, listen to me. I have a real soapbox about Channing Tatum. Okay, back in the day, one of my friends, friends, I think the friend just made up this nickname for him, which was Charming Potato, which is pretty funny. And at the time, I was like, that's right, because all I knew him from was like Step It Up, I think it's the name of that movie. But then the Magic Mike movies came out. Have you seen any of the Magic Mike movies? No, and I know what you're going to say. I've, I've heard listen, this many times. I know. People of the world, <laughs> listen to me. Listen to the sound of my voice. These movies are amazing. Now, they are very different, okay? Because Magic Mike, the first one is basically biographical. Channing Tatum. Worked as a stripper in Florida. Fun fact, one of my friends worked with him at a bar, not at the strip club, at a different bar. But so it's very it's very autobiographical and still a delight. Listen, listen to me. If Channing Tatum is going to dance on film, you want to be there. It's an incredibly sexy, fantastic dance scene between him and Sandra Bullock. And I was like, God bless you, one and all, because if you brought me into this theater with a romantic comedy with Channing Tatum and he doesn't get to dance— I want my money back. I want my money back. Okay. So the first one is great. And I think it immediately gave me just like a deeper appreciation for him. I was I was making some very short-sighted judgments about him. Okay. And then the second Magic Mike, though, is like everything you thought the first Magic Mike was going to be. And it is just, it's truly one of the most feminist films ever made. It is an ode to female desire. He is... So good in it. And it's just, again, it's just one thing after the other, like, oh, is this what women would like to see? Or maybe, like, maybe you want to see this different. Or let's talk about the complexity of female desire. Like, I can't, I can't even with this movie. I love it so much. I love him so much. When they open Magic Mike in Vegas, which I have not been to, which is a tragedy, like a personal tragedy. I really need to prioritize that in a way that is reflective of how much I love him. But They had like this Instagram video and he was like, you know, we've never had a place like this for women. And instead of sitting around as a bunch of men thinking about what you wanted, we thought, we'll just ask you, what do you want at these places? What do you want to see? I'm just and so now I'm just devoted. I'm devoted to him. I think he's an incredible actor. I think he is an incredible feminist. I think that he is so sexy. Again, not enough naked Channing Tatum in our personal book launch. I will just like zeros like we're failing. Where's our publisher on this? <laughs> well, so Maggie did want us to talk about this because it is about launching a book and uh, how it is very unrealistic portrayal, at least of launching a nonfiction book at this stage in our careers. Uh, <laughs> it's so funny to me how many people are like, so you're going to do a book tour? I'm like, that is so sweet. I wish that that were still a thing that happened for people like us. But like, you absolutely do not get to do a book tour just because you have a book coming out. Like, it's for a publisher to put the kind of listen. I love our publisher, but Divine Joy Randolph is a different species in this movie <laughs> compared to well, the yeah, real world. Well, yeah, it's really of, weird. Of I'm not this. even really understood the business model there. Like, she's publishing the book, but she kind of seems like her agent. Yeah, there's I was a like, lot What's that's happening like in this movie? off about the, the portrayal. I don't think any of this is right. <laughs> um, that is not to say that, like, I'm trying to create a scenario in which a, a millionaire would want to kidnap us, but I'm, like, happy to have Brad Pitt and Channing Tatum try to rescue us. Like, I would not be mad about the scenario. 
I am furious, though, and for anybody who goes to see it on our on our recommendation, there is a mid-credit scene that I missed. Did you stay for it? Yes, because the gentleman who took our movie tickets said, be sure that you stay. Dad Gummit, where he, was I, said, my Cinemark staff on this? He said, my wife really enjoyed it. <gasps> and I loved him so I'm much. so mad And I when we it. sat down in our seats, I looked at Chad and I said, have you ever seen a more caring act by a movie theater employee? And, and when we left after the credits, Chad was, Chad did not love this movie as I loved it. Oh. He, he was not ugly about it, but you know, it wasn't his thing. Chad. But but I said to him, how how kind and generous was it that that employee told us that we needed to stay? It was really, really sweet. Well, I am going to call up my Cinemark and be like, you need to tell people every time they go see The Lost City to stay because I'm so mad I missed it. I've obviously since read about it and I won't spoil anything here, but it does have to do with Brad Pitt, who I adore and who I also thought was incredible in this movie. Brad so Pitt good. is I just so good at a bit part that's a little kooky. I love it. It's just he is made for a role it. like this. And you know what else I love? His sexy face. He's just getting hotter and hotter every year, just like George Clooney. And now listen, Sandra's looking good, too. 57? Are you freaking kidding me? If we are to get kidnapped at any point mm-hmm, in the mm-hmm, process mm-hmm. of bringing our book into the world. By a millionaire looking for some sort of archaeological discovery. I am going to need more comfortable clothes than she had to wear for the vast majority of this movie. I know. But it was like also part of the joke. Yeah, it was funny. It was cute. It was delightful. And you just forget how I haven't, you know, I didn't watch her scary movie on Netflix because pass. Mm -hmm. And so I don't I can't remember the last movie I watched her in, but I adore her. I think that she is such a phenomenal actress. Like, again, the physical when she is trying to get on that stool at the beginning of the book launch like show about lost it. She's so, so good. And again, such an undervalued skill that is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And she does it so well, again, and just the dancing. Listen, y'all, go see this movie. It's such a delight. Maggie was correct. Maggie was right. Two thumbs, way up. I guess six thumbs between the three of us. Loved it, loved it, loved it. I don't really know how to transition out from naked Channing Tatum to the end of our show. But again, this is just, (laughs) this is the, this is the journey Pantsuit politics, furious about Republicans, optimistic about unionization trends, feminist ode to Channing Tatum. We do it all here. We do it all here. And we will be back in your ears on Friday as we get even closer to our book launch. Please, please join us in Waco. Pre-order the book. Join us for the virtual launch party. We love all of you. We will be back in your ears on Friday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Emily Neasley. The Pettins! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. 
Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Catherine Vollmer, Amy Whited, Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Ashley Thompson, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.